My kids recently, uh, we, a couple weeks ago, I decided to show them the old Batman TV show. The one that far predated my life even. And uh, I, I decided to show that to them. And uh, I remember my parents showing it to me when I was a kid. And I uh, really enjoyed it. And I showed it to them. And of course, it's super, super cheesy. Um, but they also enjoyed it, and so they got a kick out of it. They're young enough, six and four, where it was still awesome. And so I showed it to them, and then uh, in order to get it, I purchased an episode off of like Amazon Prime or something, and it was a couple dollars. And when we finished, it got down to the end of it, and it said something like, you know, will the Caped Crusader get sawn into by this blade? Find out next time, uh, same bat time, same bat place. I don't know if you guys remember that. And the episode ended. And my kids were like, all right, turn on the next one. Like, let's keep going. We got to know what happens. And I said, actually, that's where this one ends. It costs more money for next one, for the next one. And it's time for bed, so good night. <laughs> And uh, they didn't know what to do with that. They have only ever existed in a world where you hit play on the next episode of whatever streaming. And so they didn't know what to do with that. Well, today we're going to get part one of kind of uh, uh, the story of uh, John the Baptist, his birth foretold. And it's really not going to finish this week. It's going to finish in a couple of weeks that Pastor Ken uh, will, will be finishing and giving you more of the resolution of this story we're going to give you the beginning and then you'll just have to come back at the same bat time, same bat place in a couple of weeks to, to hear the end of it. Or you can read your Bible uh, either way. But today we're talking about this story of John the Baptist and his birth foretold. And the way Luke tells stories, he gives so many details. He gives so many details so that you can have certainty of what he's saying is true. We often grow in our certainty or in our uh, belief of something being true when we have all of the information. When, when the, the blurred lines are made clear and the details are given uh, and, and you could fact check. And, and that's how Luke wrote this passage and the entirety of his book. And he wrote it to give certainty to Theophilus. And it provides certainty for us today. What's amazing is in this passage, we're going to see God's plan of redemption begin to unfold. And his plan of redemption has really been unfolding from the very beginning, from the creation. We fell and his plan of redemption, we started to see it unfold. But the Bible says that it was even, Christ had, was slain before the foundations of the world that his plan of redemption began long ago, but we see this New Testament plan of redemption beginning to unfold. These are the first events chronologically of the New Testament that we're about to witness today. And so it's interesting that this plan that we see that starts to unfold today overcomes so many things. God has been silent in many ways, for 400 years, they hadn't received scripture. They, they hadn't had the prophets speaking in the same way for an expansive time. And when he comes here to speak again, you see God's plan. And he overcomes human limitations. 
He overcomes time and distance of hundreds of years and the faithlessness of people in this passage. And we see his plan of redemption begin to work. And we're caught somewhere in between this time of Thanksgiving and Advent as we talk about this. But we can begin to see the wheels turning on this vehicle of redemption that's moving towards us. And so God is making a way for humanity to have peace with him. Can you imagine what would happen if he never did that? See, typically children are, are born through a, a, a very typical means of a, a father and a mother who are both capable and able to bear children, right? Well, God starts his plan of redemption with two children. One is born of a barren widow and the other of a virgin. He begins supernaturally. He begins uh, pointing out that this plan had to have been divine. It had to have been uh, from that only God could create a plan that starts with a barren widow having a child and a virgin. But nothing stops God's plan. So here it starts, and, and the first few verses we get the backstory of, of who the people are in this plan. What's interesting in verse 5, or in verse uh, uh, 8, excuse me, you see kind of the location for this plan. This plan is, is beginning at the temple. The temple has a lot of significance throughout the Bible because the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. The temple was in many ways a, a, a picture of God, God's willingness to have a relationship with humanity, and he does so here. His plan begins in the temple again. He's demonstrating that this is a plan that comes from the very hand of God. The one who's allowed and pursued a relationship with you, this is where this plan begins. It doesn't begin with our initiative, it begins with his initiative to build a relationship with us. The temple was a picture of God's relationship with humanity. It signified his presence. And after hundreds of years of silence, the plan of God picks up again at the temple with a man named Zechariah. I love what Zechariah's name means. It means God remembers. Hundreds of years has passed, but God has not forgotten. And he remembers perhaps Promises that he's made, and, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But Zechariah was of the division of Abijah or Abijah, however you'd like to say that. And he was, this is the, the eighth division that's listed in Chronicles 24. And there were several divisions of priests, and he was one of them. And he goes, uh, Zechariah goes to represent the people of God in the temple. And as he's interceding, something happens. So Zechariah is one of the major kind of players in this account. Another one is Elizabeth. And her name means that my God is an oath or a promise. She was barren. She couldn't have children and they were both elderly. It says here in the first few verses that they were blameless before God. They followed God in spite of their circumstances of not being able to have children, which was shameful for her. 
We see in other passages like in the New Testament when the disciples are, are walking and the tower had fallen on some people, they asked Jesus, was it because the, the people sinned or their parents sinned? Why'd that tower fall on them? And that was a prevailing belief that if you couldn't have children, did you sin or did your parents sin? What was the result of that? And so it was kind of a, a shameful place to be, even though that wasn't accurate. And it's interesting that God works often through women who have struggled to have children. Sarah, right? She would be an example. Hannah, Samuel's mother, would be another example. God often works through these women who have struggled to have children. Because he loves them just as much as he loves any other woman of his. And in some ways, he demonstrates a special care or love towards them because it's through this elderly couple that he purposes to uh, allow his forerunner to be born. And so there's uh, Elizabeth and there's Zechariah, and there was also this promise that had been made that's important or helpful to know, and Luke doesn't talk as much about this, but other passages do, like Isaiah 40, um, if, you, if you're familiar at all with the structure of Isaiah, a lot of times it talks about the sin and the struggles and the failures of the people throughout the first 39 chapters. But in chapter 40, it talks about this comfort that will come. This comfort that will come to, to sinners and those who fail and fall short. And it speaks of the person through whom this comfort will come. But it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It says that the glory shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, that was speaking of John the Baptist who had come. This, this baby who would be born in Matthew 3, it says that he was the one preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So there was this, this promise that appeared beforehand of a forerunner for Christ, a, somebody who would go before the king and would prepare the way for Jesus, and that's John the Baptist. Malachi talks about this a couple of times. In Malachi 3.1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And in chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of our great and dreadful day of the Lord. And John the Baptist was this prophet who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So there was this promise that was hanging out there that this forerunner for Christ would come. And Elizabeth and Zechariah's names both point to this God remembering him remembering his oath or his promise. And so what is God remembering in their lives is, is some of the question that I had and was thinking. And, and Luke doesn't say explicitly here, but there's perhaps he was remembering his promise to redeem his people. Because through John the Baptist and preparing the way for Jesus, he would redeem his people. Perhaps he was remembering his covenant with David that there would be a coming king, Jesus, who would reign forever and this is the beginning of that process. Perhaps he was remembering his promise of a forerunner who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah 
Or perhaps he was just remembering an elderly couple that had been faithful to him and through whom, through these children, he would redeem them and bless them beyond all expectation. One thing that we do know is that God remembers. God never forgets. The promises that God has made to us, he never forgets. You can take them to the bank and and I think sometimes we forget, but he never does. There was a, a time that, that Jordy recalls or that he'll mention where he, he was in a store and maybe we had moved to the next aisle or something and, and he panicked. He didn't know where we were. And so he, he got really nervous really quickly and he came across us shortly after. And old, though it had only been a couple of moments, they were high alert panic for him. Perhaps you remember. I know there was a time I kind of lost my mom in the grocery store at a young age and it's nerve-wracking. What really happened is in that moment in Jordy's thoughts and in the panic is Jordy forgot that we never forget him. He's our son. Right? We couldn't we we do not go we have three kids at a young age we do not go far without thinking where our children are and Jordy forgot that we wouldn't forget him. And sometimes we do that with God. Sometimes we forget that we'll never be forgotten by him. Sometimes we think that there's something different going on other than God working things together for his glory in our lives. And in those moments, we can wonder, does God remember? He does. He does. Well, God is sometimes quiet. He never forgets his own. And if today you're a follower of Christ and you're experiencing the troubles of life, know that you have a God who sees you and will never forget you. In fact, even even through these hard things, he's taking you by the hand and leading you towards eternity with him. Because that's what he does for his children. And so that's the backstory, And then... As we get into the kind of the plot of, of the story here, it says that Zechariah in verse 8, he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Now there were thousands of priests. There could have been anywhere 8,000 to 15,000 priests. This was like a once in a lifetime thing for Zechariah to be in the temple burning incense for the children of Israel. This was a big deal. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense and they're waiting for Zechariah to come out. And on this huge day in the life of Zechariah, there appears next to him, or to him and the angel, there appears next to the altar, excuse me, there appeared to him the angel of the Lord, verse 11, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So he's alone in the temple. He's chosen by, uh, by Lot out of, out of thousands of, of what could have been priests to go in that day. And he, he goes in and he sees on the right hand kind of the side of, of power, this angel, this messenger standing there. And he was terrified. You know, it was talked about throughout the Old Testament. Oftentimes the priests, as they would go into the different, the holy of holies, they might have bells around their uh, around their garments, because if you walked in there, 
and you weren't right with God or you were doing something you weren't supposed to, you might die. Nobody else was going to go in there after you either. <laughs> they were not going to do that. They had a rope tied to your ankle. They were going to start pulling you out if something happens. I love you. I'm not going in the Holy of Holies after you. If God did that to you, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I go in to save you or try to help you. So we're just going to pull you out if that happens. And, and so when Zechariah seen the angel of the Lord there, he might have been wondering, what did I do? Did I mess up? Am I doing something I shouldn't have, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't have done? And so he is terrified. And the angel says, fear not. See, this messenger had come from heaven with a specific message for Zechariah. And you can almost feel the seal being broken of God once again speaking audibly to his people through his word after years of silence between the Old and New Testament. This is when the, the, uh, the top is opened again. So the messenger has a message. The message is don't be afraid. And then he gives so much information, so much, so quickly, that must have been kind of mind-blowing for Zechariah. I have a, a particular niece. I have a niece with me today. It's not this niece. It's a different niece who can tell so much information about a story in so little time. It's amazing. She can take you on a roller coaster of emotion in seconds, it feels like. And then the story can go for long periods of time and there's, there's so much information and you're trying to grasp it all and I'm wanting to ask questions, but she's on to the next thing, right? And so this angel starts this message that he has for Zechariah and there's so much and it, it starts with don't be afraid and he says, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I imagine John the Baptist or uh, Zechariah had questions there about his son, but before he could ask those or maybe fully process, he said, "You shall call his name John, and you'll have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children to Israel, of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah." There's so much information here. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel says, you're going to have a son. You're going to call him John. He'll be in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to be the fulfillment of those passages in Malachi and Isaiah. He's going to be one who dwells out in the wilderness like Elijah did. He's going to be one who preaches boldly to kings like Elijah did and make enemies like Elijah did. They both will faithfully follow God in spite of opposition. One author said, no two characters of Scripture are more alike than John the Baptist and Elijah. And he's going to follow these additional rules, this Nazarite vow. He's going to follow that. He'll be great before the Lord, it says. And Jesus would later say of John the Baptist, in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
And I, I don't think that he was saying that because John the Baptist was just better than all of us. He's just a better stripe, a better person than all of us necessarily. I think a lot of what they had to do with was the position that God placed John the Baptist in. It was going to be one of honor. He was going to be the forerunner of Christ. He was going to put his spirit on him at a young age. And John the Baptist was great because of what God had done. He's going to turn the people of Israel to God and make them ready for the Lord. God had made John the Baptist of a particular stripe where he was going to be bold, preaching repentance and faith. He started a, a ministry that was kind of brand new. And from it would come Jesus himself. You have the privilege of baptizing Jesus personally. But what's the most interesting thing, I think, from this, this section is at the beginning. In verse 15, he says, Your prayers have been answered. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. What prayer was being heard? Now I initially thought, well, he wanted to have a a child. So the prayer for this child was being heard. But I don't think that was the case. I don't think that's the prayer that, that the angel and that God had answered there, that the angel was referring to. I think that he was referring to the prayer for the redemption of his people. That Zechariah, as a priest, was representing the people of Israel before God. And he was going there to burn incense on the altar. And he's asking God for redemption for his people. See, he probably wasn't as much about him just having a child because the angel seemed to be speaking of the current prayer that Zechariah was engaged in. And Zechariah was a priest on official duty, probably not praying for his personal needs. Most likely, as an elderly man, he had made peace with his circumstances at this point that he would not have children. But he was in the temple, I believe, praying for the redemption of his people and boom, the angel appears and says, your prayer is answered. Things have been silent for a while, but they're not silent anymore. You're going to have a child. And this child will be great before God and he will turn the hearts of people towards him. It's amazing. I think so many times we've probably longed for that type of an answer to our prayer. That an angel would appear on the spot and say, it's answered. It's done. It's happening. I'm sure we pray like Zechariah for souls to be turned to Christ. We, we know that your, your, your life and eternity will be so much better if you know the person of Jesus. God remembered Zechariah. He answered his prayer on the, on the spot. Now the response from Zechariah. This story is many things, but one thing it is as well is the story of faithlessness to trusting God for Zechariah. He's on a journey of faith throughout this story. And in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I think that this is just a good tip if you're a married guy. Um, that 
you know, if you're going to refer to yourself as old, that's fine, but maybe think of a creative way to, to speak about your wife. So he, he spins it. She's advanced in years. You never know when an angel's listening and Luke might record it for all of humanity to read forever and Elizabeth might not have been too happy if he just straight up called her old. So he said, I'm old. My, my wife, she's advanced in years. And so, how could this happen? He says, I'm Zechariah and I'm old and I love the response here. Verse 19, the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And it literally, well, figuratively and will literally shut Zechariah's mouth. We have, we have many issues that we bring to God that we... You don't understand. I, 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 I can't give this. I don't have a whole lot. Or I can't do this. I'm not gifted in this area. Or I'm not the type of person that does this thing. And we feel maybe pressed or encouraged to do something. But our response is, I can't do that. And God's response is, I am God. Gabriel's response is, I stand in the presence of God. Do you think you being old is an issue for me? Do you think that's a problem here? How often do we make our, our meaningless and, well, somewhat meaningful, but small circumstances create such a significant roadblock to our following God? We do this far, far too often. The angel says, I stand in the presence of God. His perspective of God, Zechariah's perspective of God, was just too small at that time. I think we fall into that trap often like Zechariah. I think often we have too small of a perspective of God. I remember uh, last year when we moved from Oregon to Michigan, um, I moved without a real plan for my employment and I moved across the country and had talked to some churches but had not uh, had a, a significant plan. And when I got here, I knew I wanted to keep doing my, my, uh, some of my kind of uh, degree work. And so I got here, we didn't have the money because I was unemployed for me to continue to pursue uh, a degree in counseling like I wanted to, and it gotten to a couple of days before classes, and I had registered for these classes, and I was realizing I was going to need to cancel my registration for these classes because I don't have the money. And so I talked about it with Marissa, and I prayed, God, if you want me to keep taking classes, supply my needs, please. And We've went through this for some time. I've taken classes for a long time and God has always allowed for us to walk through it without debt and I didn't really want to take out student loans now because he had just miraculously provided so many times and so we prayed and um, I didn't mention anything to anybody because I didn't want to ask for money and it's uh, just for college. And so time passed and uh, two days later, I it was the day actually before I needed to have a determination, am I taking classes or not? 
And I got a, a call from a lady in my church in Oregon, and she said that she would love to pay for my classes. And I was kind of wondering how I didn't tell anybody. And my wife had had one conversation with a lady who happened to tell another lady in Oregon, and she wanted to pay for my classes the day before I needed to know. She didn't have all the details. She didn't know the amount. She just said, tell me what it is, and I'll pay it. And I started to thank her, and she wouldn't even let me thank her. He said, I just want you to know how much Jesus loves the Napiers. Don't, don't thank me. God gave me this money. I just want you to know. I just want you to know to know how much Jesus loves the Napiers. And it was so encouraging to me. I realized, oh my goodness, because I, I, I had completely resorted to this prayer. just wasn't going to get answered. It's not going to happen. It's short notice. We got like 48 hours. It's, it's not happening and God answered it on the day before. And it's, it's amazing when we have those moments because God doesn't always answer our prayers and, and sometimes he does. And when we have those moments and it encourages us to think about God, see him as bigger. He's bigger than we realize. He's more capable than we realize. He can provide thousands of dollars in the last minute when he wants to and when he purposes to. And so... And I realized I, I, I really wasn't even asking in faith. I was kind of more asking to cover my bases. And I, I didn't have as much trust in God as I should have. But he was faithful even when I was faithless. And I think faithless. And I think sometimes we can ascend to the idea that God is really big. And we know he can do everything. But we don't act like it in day-to-day -day life. We're not ready to trust and to run and to believe and to go wherever he wants us to or do whatever he wants us to do. We're not, we're not prepared to do that. And, and all that does is reveal that our view of God is just too small. He is a God that's in control of everything. He is a God that has formed you, has shaped you, has called you to follow him. It's, it's interesting when you see, if you were to just look through the Old Testament and see, when people are encountered with God, what do they do? Job fell down and said, when he was in front of the presence of God, his, his mouth was shut. He, he fell down and then he said, I hate myself. In comparison to, to who God is and how amazing he is, he fell down before him and just said, I can't handle this. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm unclean. And I dwell in a, with a bunch of unclean people. And you are pure and perfect. And whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. We need to have that perspective of God. When we study our Bibles, when we come to church, we need to have a perspective of God that he is bigger than whatever you're dealing with. And it's the answer to so many issues of life that you might not even realize. And things like our, our anxiety is calmed when we realize that we have a God who is in total control. A God who's better equipped for control than you are. You may think that your control would be the answer to your problems. It would not be. God's control is the answer to your problems. We need to fall down and accept that. That we, if we would see a big God, we would see that our, our, our lusts are quelled when we see him as most lovely, desirable, and, and intending things for our good. 
It is good to find your joy and satisfaction in God. Our anger is put away when we see that Christ endured God's anger for us, his wrath for us. Our pain becomes a way when we begin to see that we can glorify God through it. And what a testimony it will be as we endure of how valuable God is. And we love others because we feel God's love for us. When we have a, a, a big God, he can handle big problems. And we can trust him. If you have a small God today, in your mind and in your heart and in your perspective, then you have big problems that you have to bear on your own. Because he can't handle them. We need a perspective of, of a big God, the perspective that Scripture gives us, a God that can overcome, a God to whom the nations are a drop in the bucket to. We need a big God to love people, to serve others, to share the gospel, to draw near to him, to obey. We need a big God in our perspective. So, the messenger lays out these things to Zechariah and what's going to happen. And Zechariah responds, saying, I'm old, in a lack of faith. And the angel says in verse 20, Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay. When he came out, he was unable to speak. It says in verse 23, when his time of service has ended, he went home. The result of this story is when he went home, verse 24, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Often, a girl would have, you know, like I mentioned before, thought of to have done something wrong if she was barren. And, and Elizabeth is, has been barren for some time. And now that she's having a baby, that was probably all that she would want to talk about. Is that she, in this late age of her life, is, is having a, a baby, but probably no one would believe her for quite a while. They'd look at her like she was crazy or whatever the case may be. And so she waits. She stays home. I imagine she rejoiced with God alone. And then she goes out five months pregnant, carrying this promised child who would be a forerunner for Christ. The joy beaming on her face, maybe the shame or the, the downcast look when people would be talking about they're having another kid or whatever the case may be. Now, Elizabeth was no doubt beaming with a child of promise. She had to have felt above all people most blessed as a result, and, and that's as much as what she says, the Lord has taken, he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. That reproach, that, that shame, that sadness that she would feel. Do you feel that comfort that Elizabeth felt? That's what God does for his children. He removes their reproach. He looks on them, remembers them, and removes their shame. 
And that's what happened to Elizabeth here. The Bible says in Psalms 138, 6, For the Lord is high. He's a big God. He's high. But he regards the lowly. And that's what he did in the life, life of Elizabeth. And many in here today, perhaps you're still bearing the weight for your sins. You're, you're still bearing the shame of past mistakes. You, you haven't yet taken your sins to the cross and laid them down before Jesus. And so you have to deal with the sins that you've done alone. You've hurt people. You've sinned against people. You've fallen short of a standard that God's given you. You know you've done wrong. Our conscience bears witness to us that we have. In our hearts, we know we're violators and sinners who have, have failed so many times. And I've screwed up just like you have. And the reality is, is that the Bible talks of a literal place for judgment for those who have failed. For those who have sinned against the holy God, you've committed high treason against high heaven and you must pay for that. And there's a, a literal hell for sinners to feel the, the emptiness, the time apart from God, the shame of your sins forever. If you're, you've broken God's law, your destiny is to live there forever. But God. Right? Just as he did the impossible in the life of Elizabeth, and she was able to bear a child that she never could, and, and through that she, he took away her reproach, it's through the promised coming Christ that God took away our reproach. Those who run to him in Christ, those who fall down before him and say, Christ, I need you. I have no righteousness of my own to offer and I, I bear the penalty for my own sin and I need help. Will you save me? God takes away your shame. You don't have to bear it alone anymore. You don't have to bear it at all anymore. That goes to Jesus. He takes it on the cross for you he stands before the wrath of God on your behalf and you walk scot-free into eternity. A chosen child of his. And if we're followers of Christ, that's, that's the God that we serve and he's, and he's big and he's accomplishing his plan and nothing can thwart his purposes and so follow him, trust him. Serve him. Do things for him. Take risks for him. I don't know what that person will think of me if I say this. If I, if I reach out, if I try to share the gospel, if I try to be a light, if I, if I step out in love, I may be rejected. Take risks for God who is big and wants to save. And just like Elizabeth, Zechariah, he will not fail you. We often find that even in our faithlessness, God was working all the while in spite of ourselves and our failures and our shortcomings. You know, John the Baptist would later say that there one, comes one after him who is greater than him. He was a forerunner for Jesus Christ. And he says, this one comes after me. I'm not able to even latch his sandal. I'm, I'm not worthy to even do this. this. This great man was not worthy to tie the shoes of the person who came behind him. 
Next week, we get to discuss the birth of that one. That being foretold and the response of his mother. So I look forward to doing that with you next week. Same time, same place.